As a pastor of New Hope Community Church in Detroit, Michigan, Kevin Butcher leads a racially and economically diverse congregation. He's passionate about helping people see themselves through the Father's eyes, gain freedom in Christ, and live in authentic community with one another. His book, Choose and Choose Again, shares the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by the healing love of God. Please welcome Kevin Butcher. It's really good to be with you again. Um, seems like November was only yesterday, which maybe, uh, maybe it's my age, or maybe it's what C.S. Lewis said. He said that time is so weird. He said, it seems like time flies when really it just ticks along. He said, maybe that's a sure sign that someday we're meant to live outside of time. Isn't that cool? So in any case, uh, not to wax philosophical, let me just say again, it's so good to be with you. And one person who is not here this time, who is with me in November, is my, my best friend, my wife, Carla. The picture you're gonna see right now is um, of her and I on, uh, in Florence, on, on the, in the square. And have you been to Florence? It's an unbelievable experience. You could spend forever there. And um, um, the reason she's not here is because um, since she was here, well, let me first tell you that she gave you one of the greatest compliments you could receive. As a pastor's wife for 35 years, she's not exactly always enjoyed being a pastor's wife. In fact, when I asked her to marry me, she said, I will marry you if you promise not to become a pastor. And uh, I was dropping out of seminary at the time because I knew I wasn't holy enough to be like these other cats. So I dropped out and so I wasn't intending to. And then we got married and three years later, yikes, something happened in my spirit. And I said, I think I'm supposed to go back. And so she went with me, but it's never been her favorite thing because of all the stereotypes people have about pastor's spouses. She's been hurt a lot by by the church, and so she loves people, loves the body of Christ, doesn't love church so much, if you know what I'm saying. But she said about you guys, she said, I loved those folks at Scottsdale Bible, no lie. And she said there was a tremendous spirit there. So yeah, I just wanna tell you that. It's the truth, it really is the truth. And, um, and then, uh, since that time, we've been on a long medical journey. She's uh, contracted a very, very rare cancer in uh, her thyroid, won't go into detail, but less than 100 cases in the world. Um, and so there's not a lot of protocol, but she's been going through a protocol. She's had uh, surgery and then radiation and chemo for the last uh, five weeks, and she's entering her last week, next week. Unless you say, first of all, I wanted to tell you that story um, because I would covet your prayers for her. The doctors are optimistic um, that they can get this cancer, but you know, cancer's cancer, and so we're trusting, trusting God. Um, but uh, I not only wanted you to pray for her, but lest you say, what's this guy doing here preaching to us when his wife is back in Detroit going through her last week of chemo and radiation? So what happened is, we, we obviously, I mean, this is a part of the way that I make my living for our family, uh, along with my wife's job. And so I had so many trips scheduled. And so what I did when she was diagnosed, I called everybody and I, I emailed them and said, you know, my best friend is going through something right now and you just need to know we're just gonna see how this goes. But if at any point in time, even the night before I fly to be with you, if she says, baby, I need you to stay home, I'm staying home. You just need to, you, you can pull me out right now if you want, but you need to know that's on the table. And so that, that's my truth. So you need to know I'm not, 
well, I may be a bad husband, but it's not because I'm here this weekend. Um, <laughs> she, she wanted me to come. I'm here with her blessing. My sister and sister-in-law are coming in today, and they'll be with her all week for this last week of, of chemo and radiation. And I got to just say this. Um, you know, like all marriages, ours have, has gone through some ups and downs, and we've been married almost 40 years now. And, uh, but yesterday, um, or two days ago, whenever it was that I left home, we hung on to each other like... I don't think we've ever hung on to each other. And, uh, and she even at one point said, kiss me again. And I was like, how old are we, man? Maybe, maybe I'm not going to Scottsdale Bible Church, man. I'm canceling that flight. It was, I wouldn't have missed that moment. I just love her so much. Anyway, I'm here with her blessing. And... Um, also want you to know that what I'm going to share today, man, I don't know what you think about all the speakers that come in. You have speaker after speaker after speaker, and then you have your own wonderful pastors. But you might say, well, what you're going to get today is something that he's supposed to say. I don't have to say anything today. Um, and what has happened with my wife's cancer, it has made me, even as, you know, pastor for 35 years and all the Greek and Hebrew and the Bible and pastoring and all that, I've reevaluated everything that I've believed. Because it takes you there. Pain takes you there, doesn't it? If what you believe doesn't apply to the pain in real ways. And I got to tell you what I'm sharing with you this morning, even more deeply than when I was here in November, is exactly what I believe about God and life and our reality. So back in November, we talked about the love of Christ being the center and core of our lives. Jesus' words, love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you. And the world will know that you're with me and that I come from God. And then we might have even looked at some of Paul's words, because Paul, one of his chief followers um, in the first century, um, took his words about love, and it's everywhere in all of his letters, all of his ministry to all of his early church plans. And so Ephesians chapter 3 is one of those verses that if we didn't look at it before, we're going to look at it now. This is the pinnacle of the theology of the letter to the Ephesian believers in the first century. This is the high point of what Paul believes about our life in Christ. He says that you, that would be us, being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted is an agricultural metaphor. It means just what it says. Like if you plant, well, I don't know what you plant around here, but back in Michigan, we plant stuff and uh, it grows. And if you plant, you know, you're counting on those roots going deep because that's where, that's, that's how a plant flourishes. And then grounded is, is a uh, architectural metaphor. It talks about for all of you architects or all of you construction guys, or ladies, um, it talks about building your foundation upon. So it's interesting. Um, there are many things he could have said you need to be rooted and grounded in, but what he says is you've got to be rooted and grounded in love if you're going to follow Christ. That you may be able to comprehend with all the believers of all the ages what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, to deeply know, to experience, not just know like I can repeat words, but experience the love of Christ which sometimes is so amazing that it seems to pass knowledge, surpass knowledge, that you might be filled um, with all the fullness of God. Paul basically is saying, if you want to follow Christ with any kind of effectiveness, you've got to experience. You have to be rooted. It can't just be in the surface in your left brain where you know John 3.16. We have to experience and be rooted and grounded in um, his love. 
So when I go around and talk about this theme, one of the main questions that I get is, okay, makes sense, can't deny what the scripture says. How do you get rooted and grounded? How in the world do you take that truth that's in your left brain, because many of us know those Bible verses or why would we be here today? How do you take it deep into your spirit so it becomes literally, the, the love relationship you have with God in Christ becomes literally everything, like the words we just sang. King of my heart, you are everything to me. How do you get from head to that place down in your spirit? So if you wanna look at maybe the big idea of what I'd like to share today, it's this. Learning to live rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, taking that truth from your left brain down into your spirit is not, capital N-O-T, absolutely not, simply about knowing more truth. Let me just hear one more sermon. Let me just get the best podcasts on my iPod so I can listen to them constantly. Let me just get the best commentary. Let me get one of those Bibles that has the interlinear Greek and Hebrew so we can know what the Bible really says. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll move into our spirits then. It's not about that. It's not about just trying harder. There's a lot of us out here today that are trying real, real hard to walk with Christ. I commend your discipline. I commend your uh, courage. But it's really not about that. In fact, what we need, what we long for, is to be healed. And it's interesting um, that Jesus, when he came out of obscurity after 30 years in Nazareth, you know what he was doing in Nazareth for all those 30 years? Why, he was doing Nazareth stuff. Can you imagine the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, just got up in the morning, swept the floor, said, hey, Mom, can I go get you some lunch? Nazareth stuff. God was in the Nazareth stuff, just the faithful Nazareth stuff. And so he came out of obscurity, finally went to the synagogue in Nazareth on the appointed day. And the protocol was that somebody, uh, there were many things in the synagogue service, but one of them was that uh, one of the brothers from uh, the community would read one of the prophets. That day, the elder of the synagogue gave Jesus the, the, prophecy, the, uh, the scroll of Isaiah. Fascinating. Gave him that scroll, but Jesus decided to unroll it all the way to Isaiah 61. One of the servant of Yahweh passages that talk about this, this one, this mysterious one that one day would come in the name of our loving God and make all things right. And Jesus read these words that day from the text he chose from the Isaiah scroll. It goes something like this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, this is his mission statement, the servant of Yahweh's mission statement. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he said an amazing thing. He said, today, this text, this 800-year-old prophecy that prophesied one who would come in the name of our loving God and make all things right, today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing, I'm the one. What's absolutely more deeply fascinating to me, to, our, to my post-Reformation and post-Enlightenment ears, that's all about content. I mean, we're all about content in the West. 
is the fact that Jesus, in his mission statement that he's quoting from the Servant of Yahweh passage in Isaiah 61, he said, I'm the guy, doesn't say anything about, hey, I just want to give you a better understanding of the Old Testament. My mission, you just don't get it enough yet. Your continued pain is about the fact that I need to explain some things to you better. He also doesn't say, what I really need to do is be your cheerleader. I need you to just try a whole lot harder, and I'm going to be right by your side just saying, keep going. You can do it. Cut, cut you know, a tenth of a second off your 40 time, spiritual 40 time. You can do it. What he says is, um, I've come to give you what you need. I've come to heal you from all that the enemy for centuries has been perpetrating upon you. And I've come to set you free from the change that he has had binding you. I've come to heal you and I've come to set you free. So what I'd like to talk about for the rest of our time this morning is what this healing might look like in real life, real time. I'd like to talk about first what I think we've made it to be. We've stopped short of what it can be and then talk about the rest of the layers that I think Jesus came to heal that maybe, maybe we're just not quite aware of this morning. So first, um, why do we need healing? Well, there are difficult life circumstances that create a deep need. I mean, you have your list this morning. If you could be honest with the person next to you, and I, I hope you can, I, I think you can, I hope you are. But again, in church, it's often not very kind. You know, you come in from the parking lot. I mean, I drove in this morning and everybody's walking in and we're all looking good. And, and you know, and people, people might say, how are you? What are you gonna say? Probably good, good, doing good. So uh, you may not bring out your list immediately to church folk um, about the pain, but you have some pain that needs healing. Some of you have physical pain today. I've had many people go in the last two services through the book line that say, I've dealt with cancer. I, we're praying for your wife. My wife has cancer. My husband has cancer. Some of us today are wrestling. I know I'm with you. I wish I, wish I could pause time and come down and just sit with you and let you tell me what's going on in your life, to somehow be Jesus to you as a son of God, just for a moment, if I could just be with you as one of his sons, um, because that pain needs to be healed. You can't be talked out of it, it needs to be healed. And then many of us have uh, financial pain and emotional pain and relational pain, and then we have the pain of our attempts to heal our own pain, our attempts to fix it, and it, you know, it just um, doesn't seem to work very well. So what do we do in evangelical Christianity? We do a very good thing. Don't miss what I'm saying. We bring in biblical truth that's supposed to uh, change our behavior so we can deal with our pain um, a lot better. Second Timothy 3 is very clear. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, and for instruction in righteousness. And I believe that with all of my heart. With what I'm going to say next, don't you be telling Pastor Jamie or your elders, you guys brought in somebody that doesn't believe in the authority of scripture. That's just nonsense. I love the word of God. I love this particular copy of the scripture because I've had it for 15 years. I've got all these notes. Some of the pages are almost gross because I've been there so many times and they get all greasy with what you've had, you know, with the tacos you just had for lunch. They get on you the pages of, there's parts of the Bible that my pages stick together. After that description, nobody's going to try to steal my Bible today. I'll promise you that. Um, I feel naked if I don't have my cell phone or if I don't have my Bible. Those, so I love the word of God and it is powerful, but it was never meant to stand alone in a vacuum. 
where all we need is more cognitive explanations, more cognitive truth, and we'll be able to get healed. In fact, I call, if the church stops here and says, yes, Jesus came to heal us and here's how it's done. Um, you have a marital problem? Come and listen to our eight-week series on marital problems. In fact, come to all three of the, of the, of the sermons. In fact, get them online and, um, and, uh, and uh, memorize what is being spoken and then go back into your broken marriage and get her done. And it's pretty quiet in here right now because you realize how ludicrous that sounds with some of the deep stuff we might have going on in our lives and maybe even in our marriages. And so we tend to get very, very discouraged and when we get, because we, we come into church and we get this feeling, because again, we're not always telling the truth at church. We get this feeling with everybody else is coming into the church going, I'm doing good, doing good. We get the feeling that everybody else is doing fine with get or done Christianity. Why am I the only loser? And so we tend to have three responses. You may have had one of these responses. I've had all of these. First of all, we, we lie. People will look you right in the eye and say, how you doing? And because you don't want to tell them how utterly horrifying you feel deep inside because it sounds so unchristian. It sounds so like unchristian. You just, you just lie. Or we hide. We just don't even put ourselves in a situation. I'm not getting in no small group. I know what they do in those small groups, man. I try to ask you questions that none of their business what's going on in my life, right? So I'm not getting one of those small groups. A few years ago, we started a ministry um, in our church called Boys to Men, and I know it's kind of corny, but anyway, it's the name we came up with. We even, we even spell it B-O-Y-Z to men, <laughs> probably infringing on some copyright law, I'm sure. But in the original group, one of the young brothers, he was a young brother who, um, he had a father who was a pastor, a clergy person, and he also was, I mean, just a known womanizer in the, in the community. And so he, would, he abandoned his family, he continued to preach at his church, and he continued to hang out with women in inappropriate ways that were not his wife. And when we tell our stories in this group, because it was about not just studying the word, but taking our real selves to the word. And so he'd tell his story. And every time he told his story, um, he would laugh. You know, he, was a, he was a theater major in college. He really was a hilarious guy. I mean, he's hilarious, but he would just laugh. And one night, I don't know why I said this, maybe God, I just looked over at him and I said, son, why is it that every time you tell me a piece of that story, I want to cry, but you're always laughing. And of course, the room got real quiet. And um, he really, he just bowed his head. And that was the night Damon came out of hiding and started his healing journey. We tend to hide though, don't we? we? We just don't want anyone to know. We're not sure there's anything to be done and we feel so much shame. And then if we don't lie or hide, we just tend to quit. And that's what I got to at the age of 36. I told you the story when I was here in November with all that Bible knowledge, I was a successful pastor. I'd been a successful everything. And one night I almost took my own life because I was done. I was done with get her done Christianity because I deep in my heart, I wasn't getting her done. So what if I told you that the reason we can't get her done with Bible truth alone, as wonderful as that truth of the word of God is, and we need it. What if I told you that underneath our left brains who have, uh, are trying to apply the word of God to our life circumstances that are so dastardly that underneath we have this thing called wounded emotions. 
You see examples of wounded emotions everywhere in scripture. You go to Ephesians 4.31, there's a big list of what happens to us when people don't treat us right. Bitterness, rage, malice. You can add to that list um, emotions like anxiety, fear, shame. We all have them. We don't like to talk about them. And it's interesting, when I go to different places to speak, and I, if I talk about this theme, which I often will if I haven't been there before, because I don't want to waste time just doing this. I want to root and ground. So like I went to this a group a couple weeks ago uh, uh, in Texas, a camp, a wonderful camp with a close friend of mine who's the administrator and spoke to about 160 students the first night. They're there to train to help little kids that are coming in like your VBS kids are coming in for camp. And after that first night, I, um, I said, if you want to hang out this week, just let me know. They didn't have their cell phones. Sometimes I'll give my cell phone number out, but they didn't have them because they weren't allowed to for that week of training. And so I had these sign-up sheets that I said, just sign up. And so I really can't believe in some ways that I've saved these for a couple weeks. But when I look at these names, I see the stories and I see the tears. I ended up, um, little nobody me, as one of the sons of God is still on his own healing journey, meeting with 40 of the 160 students. And there were more by the end of the week that wanted to hang out if they could. I mean, we were up to 12 and one. Many of the students that would come, they would say their opening line was, I'm not sure why I'm here, but I felt like I needed to hang out. And then I would only have to ask a question or two and the heads would start to bow and the tears would start to flow. And it's funny, what happens is I'll go into that. Before I spoke that first night, I had this feeling like these people don't need what I have to share. They got their act together. I, I got the totally wrong package of material. I'm, it's going to be dead, but it's going to be all wrong. I have that feeling almost every time I go to a new group, and then it always turns out that the group, just like everyone on the planet, because we have an enemy who's trying to take us out, and he knows we're vulnerable in this wonderful place called our emotional selves, he damages and wounds our emotions. What I've found to be true is that in most specific circumstances, Damaged, wounded emotions will trump a good piece of cognitive biblical truth, almost. And I say almost because I'm not perfect. I just know what my experience is almost every time. I'm going to tell you a story right now that I, I don't like to tell. I'm glad Carla's not here to hear me retell it. But um, I, think, I think if I'm expecting you to be vulnerable, um, Maybe I should be very vulnerable as well. I may have told it the last time I was here. I don't remember. I don't think I did. But this woman that I love so much, when we first got married, she was, I was 23 and she was 20. I asked her to marry me when she was uh, 19. I really, as I look back, I, I think to myself, where were the grown people uh, to tell us that we were too young to be doing this? Where were they? They weren't around or we didn't listen. But we got married and we were so in love and... Um, we were supposed to be the Barbie and Ken, the Christian Barbie and Ken marriage of that little Christian college where, where, where we um, met. And um, you know, we were gonna get married and drive off in a Barbie car and we were gonna you know, 
our honeymoon would be in a Malibu Barbie beach house, and you, you get the point. And so six months into our marriage, I'd had one year of seminary. I was in that dropout period at that point, working at another job, but I had, I had Bible in me from my childhood even. And I didn't know how much was jacked up inside. I'd been playing football for 10 years, and so the last four years, college football, and so I, I actually got praised and applauded and awarded for being jacked up inside, because all that jacked up stuff came out on my opponent's head. I had no idea what was going on, really. Until one night, we were having this argument in this little mobile home with green and orange shag carpet. How many of you lived in something like that? And the furniture was also green and orange, uh, trailer furniture. So sturdy, that furniture. And, and my wife, I gotta tell you, she is tough. She is, she is tender, but she's, she's a warrior. And I, I would not wanna meet her in one of those caged battles you see on TV. I'm telling you, man, she'd tear my head off. But anyway, that night, um, I was probably being a jerk and she was standing up to me, which, well, she should have. And she thinks I've conf conflated these arguments. I've, you know, looking back on history, I'm putting two stories together, but anyway, it feels right to me. So I think at one point she spit some green beans in my face, which I probably deserved it. And that at another point, you know, I was so self-righteous. Um, and I think she had said, damn it. And I think I said, we don't swear in our mobile home, you know, one of those kind of things. And this will tell you something about Carla's personality. Sisters, you're going to want to know this woman once I tell you this story. She looked right up at me, got up my face, and went, damn, damn, damn. <laughs> I'm telling you, she is no joke. But I don't know what they call it in clinical circles. I think it's called a fugue. I may be wrong about that term, but I mean, something happened. Something from my past had to do with my own baggage, my own wounds from my own childhood, and some, some abuse that I'd experienced. I mean, for about 10 seconds, I was not there. And I was coaching weightlifting at the, at the college uh, uh, university back then. I might not look like it now, but most of this was here back then. And so I was coaching weightlifting and I took all 220 pounds, muscled pounds that I had. And out of that, that screaming, wounded rage inside me, I put my hands on my best friend and I literally threw her across the room until she landed on her backside. And of course, that night she wanted to go home and well, she should have wanted to go home. By the grace of God, by the grace of God, I did that night what I'm gonna encourage us to do at the end of today, which is to get honest and tell the truth. The next day I was at the church, the elders prayed for me, didn't tell them what was going on, I just said I need prayer. The next day I was in a counselor's office and I started a piece of my own healing journey never touched her again, never touched her again. But what I'm telling you is that night in that moment, when I put my hands on her, I'm telling you, I could have told you every Greek word of Ephesians five, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. The Bible was right there. The wounded emotion was right there. And the screaming wounded emotion trumped that truth. Why? Because that emotion needs to be healed. Didn't excuse what I did, but it explained. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. And then what if I told you that underneath those damaged emotions, there's this thing called false beliefs. These are lies that have become paradigm lies in our lives, impacting everything, even unconsciously. We don't even know it, but they are. 
Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, your father's a liar and the father of lies. He's a liar and all he does is lie. So these paradigm lies feed these negative emotions that wound us to the point that biblical truth is difficult to live out in our life circumstances. It's difficult to take out to the broken world around us because we don't even have our own healing. So false beliefs, like what are they? Let me read you some here. Here's some examples of false beliefs. See if these resonate. I am stupid. There's some folks in here today that live with that. I am ugly. Others are more important than I am. I can't make decisions on my own. I can never be safe. I will never amount to anything. I can't do anything right. If people knew the real me, they would reject me. I am permanently defected. I am damaged goods. God is really angry at me. I'm not capable of succeeding. Everyone else is a normal sinner. I'm all alone in how badly I sin. I am fundamentally unlovable. I'll always be afraid. Someday success will satisfy the deepest longings in my heart. I'm defined by my performance. No one will love me if I don't achieve something. Everyone will eventually abandon me. If I am my true self, people will not want to be around me and be my friend. I have no future. My future depends completely on me. I'm on the outside looking in. I don't really fit in with anyone anywhere. And of course, the big lie, the big false belief is that God doesn't love you. He never has loved you. You'll never be enough for him to love you. You're gonna to have to go through your life empty. Now, wouldn't it be cool if we could take these 40 false beliefs, I read about 20, 25 of them for you, but what if we lined up um, good folk that would represent each of these false beliefs? I am ugly, ugly, I am stupid, I'm unlovable. If I don't perform, people won't love me, whatever. We'll just have them all across and then you can pick the one that's the most similar to a false belief that you have in your head, in your heart. And then you can just get in the line and you come down and when you get to the person who is standing there representing that false belief, you'll say something like, um, I just know that I'm unlovable. And they say, no, it's not true, you're lovable. And then you go, thank you for telling me that. Finally, I got somebody to tell me that I'm lovable so that false belief has no power over me anymore. I believe what you said. Wouldn't that be? Fantastic if that's the way it worked. But the problem is those false beliefs are so connected to those damaged emotions and they're so deeply embedded in our lives. And one other thing I'm gonna tell you in a moment to the trauma that spawns all of it, that uh, words, mere words, won't heal those false beliefs. We need to experience the opposite of the lie of that false belief to be healed. So for example, uh, a couple of months ago, I was uh, doing a men's retreat that really came out of this community, a couple of the brothers that lead this group, and they asked me to come, and just an amazing weekend. I've gotten really close. I'm gonna be getting closer to the brothers that started this thing. I'm, just a great weekend. So I'm hanging out with all these men, and I actually texted a couple of them and said, could I, could I tell a piece of your, your journey? And they said, absolutely. And so I'm not betraying any confidences here. Um, 
one brother named Derek, it, he and I had gotten together because he knew my wife was battling with cancer and his wife had battled with cancer too. And so we just started talking. And by the end of our time together, there was a bunch of pizza hanging around. We were going for the pizza. I walked up to him. He's about six. He's really tall, a lot taller than me. I walked up to him. I got right up close to him. And I said, I just want to tell you, I love you, son. We had just met, but I, I meant it. I loved him. I love him. And he texted me, I don't know if it was that night or later on that week uh, after the retreat was over, he texted me, this is what he said. While I've said, I love you, son, a thousand times to my boys over the last 19 years, I didn't realize how I was longing to hear someone say it to me. Not just you're loved clinically, but a father who really would love to have him as a son because, you know, you can sense when somebody's just saying words or if somebody's really feeling what they're saying. A father who speaks to me as if I were his son, his son and says words and I can feel that he really means it. He said something happened to me in that moment. It was beyond what any words could heal. In one of our boys to men groups, um, there's two young men named, one young man named Dave, another young man named Chris. And these guys are really, really gifted guys. And one night they were in a group talking about some of their false beliefs. And um, so a real vulnerable moment happened and Dave got up off the couch. I don't know what Chris's false belief was, but probably I'm not loved, I'll never be loved, I always have to perform. Nobody really wants me if they know the real me, something like that. Dave got up off the couch, he was on, went over to the couch where Chris is on. These guys are in their mid thirties, professional guys. Dave, took Chris, picked him up, and literally, and Dave has the chops to do this, picked him up and literally pulled him into his lap and held him there and put his head against his chest, kissed him. Some of the brothers right now are saying, remind me never to get in a small group with Dave. <laughs> Tell the truth. And some of you might say, well, what did Chris do? Did he go, hey, homie, I don't need all of that, but thanks for the effort. Uh, instead, Chris nestled in, laid his head on, on Dave's shoulder and let Dave hold him for, well, in that, in that moment, it would have seemed like an eternity, right? And then finally, the moment was over and Chris got out of Dave's lap and sat down and, um, they were all waiting for Chris to say something and he turned to the group and then he turned to Dave and he said, I've been waiting for someone to do that to me my entire life. Words alone um, can't trump false beliefs that are deeply embedded and grounded in these wounded emotions. They have, there has to be an experience that heals. I believe, as you'll see in a moment, that experience is meant to happen primarily in the body of Christ. And lastly, underneath these false beliefs, what if I told you there's this thing called trauma? Trauma is simply John 10.10. 10. Remember in John 10.10 10, what Jesus said, I've come to bring life and give it to you more abundantly because I love you. Remember what he says about the thief? The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know what the Greek word for kill really means? kill. I took five and a half years of Greek to learn that the Greek word for kill means kill, to make dead. 
These are Jesus' words talking about our enemy, and I sometimes think that we think that he was speaking metaphorically, like, I think sometimes we think, maybe it's in safer Western Christianity, that the enemy gets mildly irritating on the third Tuesday of the month between 10 a.m. and noon. The scripture paints a different picture, a picture of this mystic, angelic, dark side, angelic enemy of God, who literally is the antithesis of him. God loves us. He calls us his sons and daughters, and he calls himself our Abba. And this enemy, Satan, Diablos, hates our guts and wants us dead. Trauma is simply his attempts on every human being. No one is exempt because he hates all of us. Trauma is simply his attempt to steal, kill, and destroy in our lives that has a tendency to lock us down so that if it isn't healed, then the rest of our life, we even unconsciously will live as if we're driving with the emergency brake on because of that unhealed trauma that Jesus said, I've come to heal that broken us and set it free. So I was teaching in a Bible school a couple of years ago and a young man who was kind of like the leader of the pack, he knew most Bible. And so the, the other students would come to him for advice. He was, he was full of Bible knowledge, a really cool young man. But he kept coming to my cabin at night, the speaker's cabin, and he was saying, something's breaking inside of me. Something's not right. And I'm, I'm not a therapist, so I didn't know what it was. I just kept hanging with him, loving him. And finally, the last night he came and I asked him this question. Maybe, maybe God put it in my spirit. I don't know. I said, is there something you're not telling me about your life? And he said, well, there is this one thing that I've never told anyone. And he probably wouldn't have told me if we wouldn't have built a relationship based on love for a few days. He said, in my middle-class home with a seemingly normal family, maybe his mom wasn't present in the home, I can't remember, but anyway, between the ages of four and eight, my older sister sexually abused me. And I've never told anyone until right now. And I paused because it was such a sacred moment. And then I said, son, how does that experience, what does it make you believe about your life? He said, I, I can't shake the belief that I'm responsible somehow. And then I said, how does it make you feel? Do you see, do you see where this goes? How does it make you feel? He said, I'll never forget his words. He said, Kevin, it makes me feel, every day of my life, it makes me feel dirty. This young man was training for the ministry. Can you imagine him with all of this wound and he just keeps memorizing more Bible verses, keeps preparing more sermons and there's folk out there that are so wounded. He just keeps hammering truth, get her done. When deep down inside, his world is starting to crack because of the enemy that is trying to steal, kill and destroy him. You might say, well, okay, that's trauma, but I haven't experienced anything like this. Well, the other night when I was at this camp, after the first session, one young man, big young man, getting ready to join the Marines. I mean, he's just a real, really good kid. He came up to me and he said, two weeks ago, right before I came here, my father, who I haven't seen much because he abandoned our family early on, but he, I was seeing him before I was coming here and he said, we got in a fight and he said, I wish I wasn't your dad and I wish you were never my son. 
I don't even know why he told me that at the point, except I think it was so fresh to him. He just realized this can't stay in me or it will yank my chain and shut me down for the rest of my life. I think sometimes in the church, we bought another false belief, and that is that somehow we can just ignore our pain and we can keep it contained. Um, our dogs do that pretty well. I have this beautiful Labradoodle named Sadie, and I can be a little mean to her sometimes because occasionally she's so needy, and so she's just blowing her bad breath in my face all the time, and her breath is so bad. It's so bad. God love her. And you ever try to brush a dog's teeth? It ain't that easy. So we don't. <laughs> All that to say, I can be mean to her. I mean, not, not abusive, but you know what I'm saying. I can just, and 10 minutes later, she'll go off in the, her tail will go beep, and she'll go off in the corner and lay there like, but in about literally in like five seconds, she's back up, blowing her breath right up in my face. She got over it. We're not dogs. We're created in the image of a God who is love, and we hurt because we love, because sometimes love isn't returned. And in fact, abuse is returned, and we're, we're not meant to get over stuff. We're meant to heal. It, along Detroit's waterfront, they used to bury toxic waste when they were trying to clean it up years ago along the Detroit uh, River, and they'd put it in these big drums of some kind of steel or I don't know what kind of container it was. They'd bury them very deep, that toxic waste, and then you'd, they thought, this will take care of business. Everybody will be safe. You know what happened, don't you? They leak. Those, those barrels leaked. You ever see Aaron Brockovich, the movie? And that's what happens. That toxic waste gets down into the groundwater and it poisons everyone and everything in its sight. You and I, when we try to take our pain and just put it somewhere and go, it'll be all right, I just won't think about it. Happened a long time ago, it wasn't that big of a deal. I will promise you, you can build whatever you want around it, but my brothers and sisters, it is leaking even now into your heart and into the relationships and into your journey. What would it mean to you today if you knew there was a Jesus who didn't just say, I came to die on the cross so you could be, have your sins forgiven and go to heaven someday. What if you knew he wanted to continue the healing journey that began when you trusted Christ and that he wants to continue to heal you all the way home so that you can be free to give away some of that healing as a wounded healer to a broken world who quite frankly isn't always too interested in what we know about the Bible. They want to know if what the Bible has done to us has made us the kinds of people that connect with them and their pain to make them believe that maybe there's some healing for them too. So, um, finally, healing steps. And I don't even like using the phrase healing steps because it feels so clinical and it's really not even true. In fact, when I go to a bookstore and to buy a Christian book, the book that I will absolutely not buy is the book that says six steps to you fill in the blank. I will not buy that book. What if I said to Carla, Carla, the way I'm going to love you, I have 10 steps. It's right here in the manual. Read them. I'll be doing them to you. <laughs> she would say, are you kidding me? What, you know, are we robots? I mean, is this a classroom? What? So I don't want you to take these steps. These, these are non-step steps, if you know what I'm saying. This is a pathway. 
it's a relational pathway that follows us our whole life because of our healing Jesus who said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So what if the first non-healing step was simply this, honestly pour out your hearts to your Abba. The one who said, I'm your Dada. I am your God, but I want you to call me Abba because I want you to relate to me primarily, not as creator, not as king, but as father. Good, good father. What if you said, Father, what is hindering my walk with you deep down in my spirit where I need to be healed? Many people will say, well, I just have a rebellious spirit. Well, yeah, we all have a rebellious spirit, but there's more. And there's all kinds of stuff that feeds that rebellious spirit. So good luck with just trying to self-discipline yourself to not being so rebellious. I can tell you it didn't work for me. What if you asked uh, your father, Father, what am I really feeling? Not, not what I'm trying to get you to think I feel, because you know how I really feel. Let me tell you, show me what I'm really feeling that is boiling inside of me, that has shut me down, that has made me desperate, that has made me afraid, that has made me angry, consistently angry, that has made me anxious. What am I really believing? What are the false, believing, uh, the false beliefs penetrating my life, and when did it all begin? And then, what if the second non-step step was to take a step toward the healing Christ? By the way, sometimes I think when we think that Jesus ascended, we think that the disciples watched him go to the Milky Way galaxy. So when he says, the healing Jesus says, I'm always with you in your pain. I'll never leave you. We think, well, that was kind of a metaphor. He's way out there, and he can see me because he's Jesus Christ, but he's way out what if, did you ever think about this? And I, I don't know why I'm saying this now, because probably because I'm tired, it's the third sermon, and it just occurs to me. And when you know there's nobody else driving in the parking lot, I guess you can do whatever you want until they shut you down. So anyway, what if, remember when Jesus, after he res, was resurrected, he'd be with the disciples, and he'd be gone. He'd be with the two on the road to Emmaus, and then he'd be gone. Remember that? Boom, 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 boom. What if he was in heaven and then here? in heaven where he would eventually ascend to and then here. So what if I said to you tonight or this morning that when Jesus says, I'm your healer and I'm with you in your pain, he didn't mean he's just way up there looking down and in some kind of a God cosmic sense, he's with you. What if he is right here? He really hasn't ever left you. He's just across the veil. And what if that Jesus, when he said, in the only gospel passage that mentions the Greek word church, he said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there like that. So what if with my, my young brother that I said, I love you, son, what if in that moment, the Jesus who is our healer was right there doing a healing work, even though I gave him no counsel and he gave me no advice. We were just present to each other. Jesus said, when two are gathered in my name, I'm here. Doing what? What's he doing? Reading a book? Making a video? Could he be there doing with us in the body of Christ, the body of the healing Christ? Could he be there in that moment doing what he said he came to do? Heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Why else would Peter say this. We'll talk more about this next week. I think I even forgot to mention this verse, but it's so crucial. In the second sermon, Peter says, above all things, 
You know what the Greek word for above all things means? Come on. I've been teaching you Greek. Above all things. Above everything. Above even a good sermon and tremendous worship music, which are all still important. But he says, if you've got nothing else, love one another fervently with the love of Christ, because that love is more powerful than anything that the enemy who hates us can perpetrate upon us. Love one another fervently because that love will heal a multitude of sins. We're going to talk more about that next week. I'm going to walk down here because when I look over the edge, it, it seems to be about 25 feet, even though it's just a short drop. So I'm going to close with one story and then I'm going to read this little deal here and that'll be it. So the young man, I think I can share his name. I don't think he would even mind, but I'm, I'm going to call him by another name because I haven't talked to him for a week or two. The young man that said, my dad said that he hated me and didn't want me to be his son. Well, for the rest of the week, he was on a crew that didn't get to come to every session, but he would hang out as much as he could. And I mean to tell you, I would just be standing there during the week and all of a sudden he'd be there. I'd be, um, working on a PowerPoint before maybe a talk that I was supposed to give and he'd just be sitting there. And so the computer closed and we were just hanging out. And I got to say, I don't think anything that profound happened, but I was with him. And he knew that I loved him. So that was like five days of that kind of love. And so by the end, uh, we all celebrated communion together, all 160, 170 of us. And at the end of that communion service, he came up while everybody was taking communion. He came up and um, sat down next to me and he laid his head on my shoulder, this 18 year old, almost Marine and sobbed. And when I say sobbed, I don't mean he just kind of wiped his eye like men will do. See, I got a little bug in my eye here. He sobbed. And then he paused long enough between sobs to whisper in my ear, I've never cried in public before. And then um, he leaned up after a few more moments and said, I wish you were my father. Not look, I'm nobody but I'm someone who has faced death and the love of God has and is rescuing me. I'm, I'm that. I'm a First Peter 4.8 son of God. And I gave him what I had that week and it began to heal him. And then when we went over to take communion ourselves, he put his arms around me one more time and he said, will I ever see you again? He didn't quote any of my talks to me. He didn't say, you're the best speaker I've ever heard. He said, I want you to be my dad. That's the healing power. The enemy can put in his own broken father the words, I don't want you to be my son. And his Abba put in the words of one of his other wounded sons, I want you to be my son. And the healing began. He said to me, will I ever see you again? I can promise you this. I will be seeing that young man. If I have to crawl on my knees to wherever he is, I will be seeing that young man again. So this is the end. And I want to just read this closing illustration. It, it speaks for itself. And it, it, it's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. I promise you they're short chapters. Um, if you've been in NA or AA, you'll know this little thing here. 
We, we got choices today, my brothers and sisters. We have choices. So here, here it is. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Anybody know that chapter? Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. Get her done Christianity. Lying, hiding, feeling like you want to quit. Driving with the emergency brakes on. Or the healing Jesus who said, I came to heal you. My brother, my sister. And set you free. My Father, give us courage to get absolutely honest with you today, Abba. Some of us have been on this healing journey. Some of us, we're, we're, for those of us who have been on it, we'll continue to be on it because we know there's no other path. There's no other street. Some of us, Lord, though, this might be the day when they start to walk into your healing freedom. Give us courage, Lord. Give us courage. Speak to our hearts. Don't let the enemy continue to lock us down with get or done Christianity. Scottsdale Bible, Lord, is such a wonderful place led by a wonderful group of leaders. I pray that it becomes, even more than it already is, an amazingly loving, healing community. It already has great preaching. It already has amazing worship with, with worship leaders who feel you, God. Amazing tech folk, amazing support staff, security. I mean, it's got, Lord, this is an amazing place, but I'm praying that you will take them to a deeper place if it would please you. So that literally lost folk in Scottsdale more than they ever have will sense it. They'll see it. They'll feel it. Not so much our Bible knowledge or the next prophecy or whatever. They'll sense something here in these folk is about healing. I need to be healed and I need to be set free. That's my prayer for my brothers and sisters, for myself. In Jesus' name.